You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, February 20th, 2008, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hello, hello. And Evan Bernstein. Happy Lunar Eclipse to everyone. Yay! Yes, happy Lunar Eclipse. It's happening right now. We all just stepped out to look at the Lunar Eclipse before uh, coming back to record our show. It's inspiring. That's how much we love doing this show, is that we're skipping a Lunar Eclipse for it. Yeah, these things don't happen every day. The next one in the United States will be in 2010. The next full Lunar Eclipse. That's not that far from now. For the next full lunar eclipse, that's correct. And I think we get a solar solar eclipse in 2017, if I'm not mistaken. It actually looks reddish. Yeah, it gets a little reddish when when you get full, when it gets fully eclipsed. It's kind of biblical, you know? I'm pretty sure this means that God hates us or something. But so, Steve, now this is, there's two different kinds of of eclipses, correct? There is... Lunar and solar, yes. No, 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 I know that. No, but isn't there like the, the earth passes between the sun and the moon? And the moon yeah. could pass between... Yes, that's lunar and solar. Yes. Lunar and solar, <laughs> yes. You are correct. You were correct both times, actually. What you see right now is the shadow of the Earth falling across the moon, because the Earth has come between the sun and the moon. Bob is not with us this week. He is on vacation in Florida, having a good time in the sun while we're freezing we our We hate you, up. Bob. Hi. He's hiding from the feds. Bob actually called me today. When he was going through the haunted mansion in Disney World, ah, really? <laughs> Is that yeah. right? Why was he scared? No, it's you know we grew up loving it, and it's a classic. And so he's the one who's yakking on his cell phone while little kids are trying to enjoy the haunted mansion. Yeah, basically, That's him. and he—he's also the guy that will like explain to his daughter exactly how everything works. <laughs> Well, we have an interview coming up later in the show with Robert Fitzpatrick, who's going to school us on pyramid schemes and multi-level marketing. But first, some news items. A disturbing development, the uh, the website uh, known as Quackometer. I believe that's Quackometer. Quackometer? I like Quackometer. <laughs> I like Quackometer, too. All right, Quackometer. All right. The Quackometer website which is, as the name implies, a skeptical site looking at dubious medical claims, has been shut down by its ISP, its Internet Service Provider. This is a very, very bad development. I had blogged about this a couple of weeks ago when um, the author of the site and the ISP were, were threatened by uh, one, of the, one of the quacks that were criticized uh, on this blog. The person who was criticized is a self-proclaimed professor, Joseph Chickaloo Obi, who you know has a pretty standard assortment of, of alternative medicine kind of scams that he's running, uh, including selling for nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine pounds. And I wonder you know why the dollar short of ten thousand and then smells of a regulatory dodge. <laughs> that you can get a lifetime fellowship in his organization. Nice. Which basically means you get access to all of his nonsense, I guess. <laughs> so, you know, the details of, of, are actually fairly mundane. It could be any of a thousand, you know, uh, dubious medicine scam artists. However, he decided to to threaten to sue not only uh, the author of the the Quackometer website, who is uh, a gentleman by the name of Andy Lewis, but also the uh, the ISP, which is Netcetera, and. 
uh, as a as a show of solidarity, science bloggers and skeptical bloggers reproduced the the web pages that uh, the allegedly offending web pages that the ISP forced him to remove. This is a couple of weeks ago, and I I put them up on Neurologica blog, for example. And now Netsetter is actually qu- closing down his blog entirely. Oh, wow. Yeah. So and they're they're just quoting their policy, you know, that they reserve the right to suspend or cancel a customer's access to any or all services. Blah blah blah. So they're just caving. They're spineless. They're they they just want to. They don't want to be exposed to the possibility of being sued by this guy. But this is a this is an unfortunate blow to free speech. I mean, you know, the the internet you know, thrives on the notion of freedom and free speech and net neutrality, etc. You know, if the internet service providers are going to cave this easily every time somebody you know threatens to sue them because of the content of the site, this could lead to a rash of these just. Of, uh, of threatening ISPs trying to shut down any one site whose who, uh, whose content you don't like, they seem to have a very low threshold for doing this. This is not the first inc- uh, incidence of this. There doesn't really even have to be anything you know substantive to it. So, in, in essence, this guy's winning. This is the almost the equivalent you know of winning a lawsuit, but not having to go through any kind of process or any court of law. It's just. You know the ISP is, is caving at the first whiff of any of uh, the suggestion of a lawsuit. That's why you have to do what I do and just find a skeptical friend to host your website, and then you can bash whoever you want mm. and not get shut down. Yeah. Well, first of all, Netcetera should be ashamed of themselves. You know, I don't care that they're a company. This is you know they they can't discriminate in terms of the content of websites. Also, you know the laws. I know the laws are evolving, and it, it's kind of a moving target, but. It, but uh, it actually is the case, and again, I don't, I don't know if this is true everywhere, but at least in, in certain parts of the United States, there are laws that shield internet service providers from being sued over the content. And let's also make it perfectly clear, this was a quack who was censoring a skeptic for calling him out at being a quack. That's that's what's going on here. So, so skeptics, in particular, anybody who you know is trying to um, provide appropriate scientific criticism of either unscientific claims or you know scams or cons, they're going to be targeted by this by this kind of censorship. The thing is, I I think the great thing about the internet is that you just you can't stop information, and yeah, that, right. there's a downside to it at times. But uh, look at the Scientologists, the, somebody leaked out their crazy Tom Cruise videos and they tried to shut them down and it was too much for them. They can't, they, they just can't control it. The, uh, yeah. the viral effect kind of picked up and, and spread the information to too many places. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not overly concerned about this case either because I think that it's fairly easy to go and find a new server, somebody who will, yeah. Uh, stand up to to bullies like that and not shut down a website just over a few complaints like that. Yeah, I agree. Although there there have been cases where individuals um, have shut down over similar kinds of situations and did not just reconstitute somewhere else. So, but and it is you are correct in that like the offending you know web pages that were posted about this guy Obi have now been duplicated on dozens of sites. Now it's even more over the internet than it was when it was just on the one site. Right. Uh, the next news story comes from the American Association for the Advancement of Science 2008 meeting, which just included earlier this week in Boston. There's actually a lot of news stories coming out of there. But there was one that caught my attention that I thought we could chat about tonight, and that is a panel of 18 influential thinkers were put together 
by the National Academy of Engineering, and they were asked to discuss the 14 challenges for science over the 21st century. And the list was uh, was presented at the AAAS meeting this last week in Boston. Have you guys had a chance to look at the list? Sure. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting. So um, some of them, I think, are great, and I, I completely agree with them. Just reading down the list, we'll just discuss them one by one. So number one is make solar energy affordable. And I completely agree with, with that. That would be on my list as well. Although I think that that's, that's happening. You know, I, I actually have high hopes for the future role of solar energy, you know, really displacing a lot of our existing fossil fuels, for example. Well, the cost of, uh, of solar energy, you know, has slowly, slowly, slowly been, been going down and we, the cells have becoming more efficient. But it really hasn't caught on like I thought it would, like I thought it would. You know, I guess we can go back even 20 years now. It's not quite it's not quite at that breakout level yet in terms of cost effectiveness. But it's interesting that they that they didn't say make solar energy more right. efficient. They said make it affordable. And I think that's right. Right now the efficiency for commercial solar panels is around 12%, you know, in terms of the the amount of solar energy that's converted to electricity. It's about 12% efficient. And you know, it would be nice if we could have solar panels that are more efficient, but the more important aspect is, well, how expensive is it to to purchase and maintain these solar panels? And if that comes down, that will have a much more of an impact on the widespread use of solar than will just eking out a few more percentage points of efficiency. Well, how much more efficient could it get? Just out of curiosity, does anybody know? Well, I, uh, you know, I don't know. Now, there are like really high-end, expensive solar panels, the kind of things that we put on, for example, the, uh, the Hubble telescope, you know, where you know, it's worth having really expensive solar panels uh, in order to get as much energy as possible. And we get up to things like 20 or even 30% efficient with those kind of million-dollar solar panels. Uh, that's not the kind of thing people are going to be putting on the roofs of their houses. In the research lab, we've gotten up to 42.8% efficiency. So in terms of affordable for mass production and for consumer use or for building a uh, like solar electricity a power generation plant, we're down around 12% right now. You know, you'd figure by now they would have like little ones on the roof of cars and stuff maybe to keep the battery topped off or something. Yeah, we'll see. You know, it's, it's really hard to predict future technology, but I think that... From everything I've been reading, I wouldn't be surprised if you know we, we, we see it really start to take off in the next 10 or 20 years. Scientific American recently did an article on it where they just did a thought experiment, and they said, you know, what if we tried to build as much of a solar power infrastructure as we could? What would it cost? How much area would it take up? And you know, the, the, both the conclusions were that it's actually pretty feasible, even without requiring any significant further increases in technology or any breakthroughs. The, the numbers are starting to, to, um, to get to the point where it actually works out. Hmm. The next one they said was provide energy from fusion. That's, that's interesting. And I don't know, certainly, that, you know, fusion energy has been one of the future technologies that has been greatly anticipated of course there was you know the the uh Pons and Fleischmann cold fusion flap of of you know what was that in the early 90s and but that's one of those technologies that always seems like it's forever 20 years away and and we're not really getting closer to it so i don't know if if we're going to see fusion you know power plants in the 21st century it, it, that one's too far away, I think, to predict. What would hold something up like that? I mean, isn't it 
Is it a matter of the technologies, the supporting technologies aren't there, or they just really don't know how to truly achieve it? So, you know, we could think about it in terms of two different types of fusion, hot fusion and cold fusion, right? Hot fusion is basically like a hydrogen bomb. Right. The problem is that fusion, uh, nuclear fusion, produces so much energy that we can't control it. You know, we can't con- – with fission, you could do a, a controllable fission where we can you know, manage the amount of energy that's produced. Even still, that's challenging, you know, and if it gets out of control, that's when you have a meltdown, right? But anyway, so fission is possible but difficult. Fusion is like an order of magnitude at least more difficult. We just can't control that amount of energy. We can't control the reaction. So people have been thinking about doing cold fusion. You know, can we get that energy efficiency out of nuclear fusion but in small amounts, in controlled amounts, and without the tremendous temperatures necessary to, to, to do it now? So is there some way we can sort of force this fusion to happen by some other trick or some other process that does not require the tremendous energy, the tremendous temperatures. And that's the breakthrough that has not come and that I, I don't think we can predict if and when it is going to come. Well, it would be amazing. Imagine if that breakthrough did happen, you know, what would it be like? Would we be paying like pennies for our energy or would, you know, would it become free at that point? I don't, I don't, I don't think it'd ever be free, but I think it would be, yeah, I mean, it might be, we might be able to produce a tremendous amount more energy for the same cost, yeah. And, it, and you know, of course, the other advantage to, to both fission and fusion now is that there, it neither produces any greenhouse gases. And I think you know, fusion would be superior to fission in that it would not produce all of the nuclear waste, which is one of the biggest problems with, with nuclear fission at this point in time. So where, do we, where do we put all the waste? They didn't mention anything about fission, actually. I think, and that actually might be more of the uh, an appropriate challenge for the 21st century, for, for, you know, for the 21st century, whereas fusion might be either further down the road. For fission, you know, th- they're working on um, more efficient, uh, safer fission nuclear power plants, and especially ones that burn all of the waste material. So they're essentially nuclear power plants that produce little or no nuclear waste. That wow. would be huge. There are already there are already concepts for that, you know, on the drawing table. Nothing obviously, no no specific plans. That I think is what we're going to be working on for the twenty first century. The fission reactors are very safe. Well but the the big problem is that they produce a lot of waste. So the but the second and third generation nuclear power plants that their work the designs of which they're already working on and sort of at the theoretical level would have these sort of subsequent cycles that would burn all of the waste so it basically it would produce little to no nuclear waste. That would be a huge advantage. Uh the next one on the list is develop carbon sequestration. So a way of dealing with global warming with all the carbon production. Sequestration means that we put the carbon somewhere. You know, we bury it deep underground or we bind it up somehow so it's just not in the atmosphere. Uh, and, and again, I, I, I agree with that one. I think that's one that is being worked on, and I think that that is uh, one of the challenges that, that will probably you know, command a lot of attention during the next that's 50 years f- or so. But Steve, if we could actually do that, which means that we would have to develop the ability to collect Carbon, correct? Yeah, so like at the exhaust, and if you're burning coal and you're putting all the carbon into the atmosphere, rather than doing that, you collect it and bury it underground. Or Why can't we just somehow. do something with it to make it so we can reuse it as a fuel or you know, take it and use yeah, it that's, as Yeah, that's a good point, Jay, and I think there are plans to do that, to use the, the carbon to make stuff out of it rather than just dump, pump it into the ground. Um, the next couple on the list, I think, 
you know, manage the nitrogen cycle and provide access to clean water. These, I think, are more like of ongoing problems. You know, I'm not sure that there's any big threshold we have to get over in the next you know, decades or, or century. You know, like those are ones that it's like, yeah, we, we're always going to need to do that. You know, we're always going to need to manage the nitrogen cycle and, and have sustainable clean water. Yeah. But providing access to clean water, I mean, we have amazing filtration systems today and we, you know, just reclaiming water um, from city septic systems or city sewer, you know, the processes that we have are fantastic. Yeah, it's, a, it's mainly the problem that they're just, they don't yeah, exist around the world. And this is a kind of a deep topic and I, I don't know all of the details on it, but there are those who claim that the, if you just look at the how much drinkable water we have in the world, that that's decreasing over time. That it's not sustainable. It's not, you know, you know what I mean. And, the, and therefore, if if it's decreasing over time, eventually we're not going to have enough. And, and besides the fact that a billion people just don't have it right now, I think mm-hmm. that's the point, right? Yeah, and as, and as I said, it, it, we don't have like our nice filtration systems and access to water all over the world. There are parts of the world, you know, where access to clean water is a huge problem, and a lot of diseases spawn from just not having clean water. So uh, there's, there's, there's dual problems. It's you know, making it accessible to everybody, plus doing it in a way where it's, in, where it's sustainable indefinitely into the future. But that's a, I think that's a problem that's never going to go away. I, mean, I don't know if there's any breakthrough required there so much as just a constant mm-hmm. problem that we're going to need to deal with. Uh, the next one was near and dear to my heart, reverse engineer the brain. And this one was contributed to by Ray Kurzweil, who we've talked we've uh, talked about before. He's the author of The Singularity, and he believes that by 2029 we will have human level uh, artificial intelligence. Well, this one this this is a topic for five shows right here. Yeah, this is yeah this is this is a deep topic. I blogged about this, and there was a very lively discussion uh, in the comments section after it. This, these two things are kind of related. So reverse engineering the brain is not the same thing as developing artificial intelligence, but the two tasks are merging over time because as we start to piece together like how the brain is functioning and how it's wired up to model the brain, we're actually using computers to model the brain and to test those models. And in so doing, in creating computer models of brain function, we're actually creating pretty workable computer programs, you know, and, and, and subcomponents of artificial intelligence. And the question is, are we going to get to the point where we're going to have a, a working computer model of our, you know, reverse engineering of the brain, and will that computer model actually be artificially intelligent or not? That's the question. And some people who are working in this field think the answer to that mm. question is yes. But, you know, it, this is, it's too far off to make anything, any specific kind of uh, predictions or pronouncements. Once you start to get to 20 years down the road, nobody basically can tell you any of the details. But, Steve, is there some inherent hurdle that we're going to have to, you know, really make a huge leap over in order to break that plane? That's the question. That is a huge question right now. Is there a hurdle or not? Is this simply going to emerge as a consequence of reverse engineering the brain? Or is there some, you know, something to consciousness that we haven't figured out yet and we're never going to be able to create artificial intelligence until we figure out what that thing is. I'm in the camp that I think that, you know, once we duplicate the brain's function, what the result will be will be conscious. It will be no different than the brain, um, as long as it's really duplicating it. Although here's the, another wrinkle to this, which again, this is 
kind of a huge tangent to get into, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about this in a future program. But when you talk about a computer model of brain function, you could divide that into two different approaches. One is a virtual brain, right, where you have a regular digital computer like you would be running on your desktop today, just much, much more powerful, but that computer is running a virtual simulation of the of a, of a working human brain. And would that virtual brain be self-aware, even though the hardware is just a regular unconscious computer? Or would we actually have to build a physical computer model of the brain, one that had the same kind of properties as a, a, a biological brain does? That, I, I, I don't know. I just don't know what the answer to that question is. I don't think I've wrapped my mind around the implications of that. I mean, just thinking about a virtual brain and whether or not it would be conscious is is Boy. tough. I mean, that's deep. I don't know really the answer to that. It's very profound because you, you get into the that tricky zone of does it have a right to live and all that stuff you know even though yeah. we're creating things at that complexity that could obtain consciousness you know you have to start to think about those things and you know it's it just weird to think that you could switch a life on and off at that point you know right yeah it's really weird it, it is to, and it, I think you know that's one of those things we'll learn about all that when we get there and uh, it, it'll be yeah, It'll but in really have a profound effect. Steve, I think, in the our, process, our you know, of culture. experimenting and trying to achieve the technology, we might be killing like you know, hundred thousands of people. You know what I mean, or whatever of consciousness. Of consciousness, yeah. And how will yeah. we ever really know if they're truly conscious or just an impeccable simulation? We'll that's know if a, they're truly conscious t- if, when we turn them on, they immediately start to scream. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that someone brought up that point is that if you did create a computer model of the brain, it still would it be an infant? I mean, it would it need months or years of experience and learning before it actually evolved into or de- or matured or developed into a real, you know, fully conscious entity. Yeah, but unless you built it with base knowledge, you know, you just yeah, kind of right. modeled it after a thirty-year-old, say, as, as an example. And this also spawned a lot of discussion about dualism. Now, in in my blog, I've been kind of fighting back and forth with Dr. Michael Egnor. You remember those that guy, that pediatric yeah, yeah, neurosurgeon yeah. who's an oh, intelligence yeah, Discovery design, Institute. You know, guy and he yeah, makes just absolutely absurd arguments in defense of intelligent design. Well, he's a dualist too, meaning that there's some spirit, there's some ghost, there's some magic in the brain that's necessary for consciousness, which is absurd. I mean, there's, there's, no, ev- there's no evidence that there's anything needed in addition to the physical brain. And every single, every prediction that flows from the hypothesis that the physical brain creates consciousness so far has come true. Every observation is consistent with that. There is no prediction that flows from the dualist hypothesis that has come true. And of course, some of the dualists, you know, the ghost in the machine proponents, get around that by by formulating their hypothesis in a non-falsifiable way, which of course is, a no, no. you know, you depart the stage of science yeah. once you've done that. Uh, and it, it's I, one thing that I've come to understand is that they they really are creationists. You know, the, the, the way they argue, the exact style of uh, of argument is the same as creationists. They deny 
the implications of neuroscience in the exact same way that creationists deny the implications of evolution. So it's been very interesting. But this sort of ties into the artificial intelligence reverse engineering the brain question because the dualists believe that we will never be able to create artificial intelligence, that even if we were completely physically modeled the working brain, there still wouldn't be the ghost in there, right? There wouldn't be whatever that other thing is that you need to be conscious in there. So it could never work. Well, you know, in 20 years, if not 20 years, 30, 40, 50 years, whatever, when we just physically are able to model the brain, you know, then we'll see when we flip that switch, we'll see what happens, you know, and that'll have pretty interesting implications. We're going to move on to other topics, but let me just read through the rest of the list, and we can't. We don't have time to talk about every single one tonight. But some of the things on the list are interesting. Prevent nuclear terror—that's a pretty uh, yeah. important thing. Definitely, I, I, I hope, hope we're so successful too. at that one. S- yeah, secure cyberspace—that'd be nice. Enhance virtual reality. Of course, kind of come on. It's kind of happening on its own. I don't know. How we, long do we have to wait for real virtual reality? Come on, it's been too long now. I mean, it's a, it's a. I don't. It's not a black or white thing. It'll just get incrementally better over time. And at some point in time, we'll look back and like, oh, cool, we're here. Yes, yeah. we're in virtual reality. Yeah, but it should be here it now. Should be, but I know. You know, things take time, Jay. Maybe stamping your feet will make it come yeah, faster. Yeah, or shaking your fist. Yeah, mm. pouting. I, I I prefer pouting. In my virtual reality, you're not there, Rebecca. So <laughs> don't waiting. say that. That's not true. Well, you'll be there. You know, <laughs> virtually. <laughs> I won't go there. <laughs> Here's a good one: improve urban infrastructure. Well, I kind of filed it under under duh. the yeah. That's like kind of something we're always doing. You know, it's not really a hurdle to get over. It's more of just a constant thing. Advance health informatics. Mm, that's a cool one. Yeah, I totally agree with that one too. I'm I'm kind of involved with medical informatics, uh, and what's an informatic? It's, um, so this is using uh, computer systems in order to document uh, medical information, access medical information, ah. and even um, use uh, expert systems. So information that enhances care. You know, usually at, at the point of care, and I think it's just you know lagging behind you know other computer applications, but. Again, that this is that's a huge topic to get into, but it's it's in its infancy right now. It's a little bit behind. It, that is definitely something that we need to, I think, put more resources behind. Um, engineer better medicines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Advance personalized learning. That's kind of an odd one. I don't really think so. I mean, Steve, what they're basically talking about here, as far as I gather, is that they're going to do some type of profiling on each student and be able to direct the the uh, education to to maximize the the understanding of the student and, yeah, and help I them know. learn I, faster I, I, and and people talk about doing that now they even claim like some you know learning whatever centers or programs that they individualize or personalize their learning i think that's overrated i don't think that you need to personalize the learning as much as 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 is, as is sometimes claimed i think it's more at least as it is right now, more of a marketing ploy. You know, again, maybe when, like, we really can, like, image the way your brain functions, you know, we may be, and know that what your real strengths and weaknesses are, we may be able to tweak and optimize a learning plan, you know, individually. But 
I don't think that that's that's that. I uh, maybe I'm wrong. We'll see. Again, this is one of those Probably. future predictions that's really impossible to make. But I mean, like the claim is like someone's more of a verbal learner versus a visual learner, or whatever. That you really have to cater to their the way that they learn. And I think that that's only true for extreme cases. I think if you have a real a real gift or a real deficit, you know, then then maybe it could really make a huge impact. I think for most people who have, you know, in the in the within two standard deviations of the average skills neurologically, I don't think that excessive personalization is going to have a huge impact. That's well, Steve, my, my bring opinion. it down to this level. You know, you're in a classroom of 30 people versus you have your own teacher. That's different, Jay, and I think we're talking about two different things. You're talking about one-on-one learning. Sure, that's always better. They're, they're talking about, I think what they're talking about is saying that Jimmy needs to learn more visually and, and Jill you know, needs more, um, a more artistic approach or a more auditory approach. You know, she learns more by hearing than by seeing. No, but I, I think like that, that Jay is right. I think that the ideal in personalized learning, like the best personalization you can get is one-on-one and that would be tailored specifically to, yes, yeah, spatial or visual or what have you. I think you're yeah, however the they same achieve thing, just it. on different scales. Well, the, the way it will be achieved will be you know, individuals sitting in front of a computer or some whatever the manifestation of that is. Right. Well, it'll, uh, ne- it'll never get any better than the Matrix, where you know, yeah, eh, well, you know, you know something. That's that's something else. That's just upload. That's not really learning. Speaking of the list that we're trying to make through, the last one is explore natural frontiers, <laughs> and right <laughs> now the lunar eclipse is at its best point. So uh-huh. I say I that we take a break and go look at it again. Is it? Okay, let's we'll take a break and we'll come back with the rest of the show. Okay. Well, we're back from looking at the lunar eclipse. And we're going to go on to your emails. We're going to do one email this week. This one comes from David Alexis from New York in the good old US of A. And he writes, hey, guys, I've got a great discussion topic for you. At work, we have a motley crew consisting of a super right-wing Republican, an atheist skeptic, me, an atheist wannabe religious person, I'm not sure what that means, and a few Indian consultants. Needless to say, our lunchtime discussions tend to get rowdy, especially since I seem to be the only skeptic in the bunch, and boy, do I have an opinion on everything. An interesting topic came up today, naughty palm leaf astrology. You must look this up because you're definitely going to think I'm making this stuff up. I certainly thought that my lunchtime buddies were. Apparently, a few thousand years ago, a group of enlightened yogis wrote down the life story of every human being across time and across the world, mind you, on strips of palm leaves. If so drawn by destiny, you would find your way to India where your thumbprint would be taken. A search is then conducted to find your personal palm leaf among the thousands of leaves. I would think it would be billions of leaves, but whatever. That apparently has a pattern on it that matches up to your thumbprint. This palm leaf, or set of leaves, contains a full and 100% accurate account of your past, present, and future. Of course, there is no guarantee that your leaf will be found, what with all the ones that were lost or destroyed over the millennia, and the ancient writings can only be deciphered by a trained reader, and, in particularly troublesome cases, it may take months for your leaf to be found. It does not take a genius to see this for what it is, yet another crackpot scheme to hasten the divorce between the gullible fool and his money. Here's one site that describes this lunacy, and then he gives a link. Now, Evan, you, uh, you've checked up on this. I looked into this a little bit. And, you know, uh, astrology kind of, kind of says it all. Now, first of all, when we're talking about palm leaf reading, 
don't be confused. We're not talking about palm reading like the palm of a hand. We're talking about a palm leaf, like the actual leaf off of a tree. So what I found out is that uh, many, many years ago, hundreds, uh, uh, actually 2,000 years ago, writing things down on palm leaves was a very common practice. It was used to write down all sorts of things, not just uh, astrological predictions of sorts, but they, they used to write everything. It was effectively their source of paper. It was just the resource they had at the time, and they used it for for many hundreds of years. But after after a certain amount of time, you know, these leaves, they, they deteriorate, they fall apart. So what you have to do is take them, and before they fall apart, you, re, you rescribe them onto a new set of leaves and so forth. And, you know, and it was in these languages that were obviously used from 2,000 years ago, and over the, over the time, as hundreds of years went on, you know, the languages kind of faded and got lost in preference for newer languages. So what you have is that by the time you get to the 18th or 19th century, you've got some of these leaves that are that are left, certainly none of the originals, just transcripts or copies um, of the originals. There's not as many as, as there were. And they're taken to be these mystical pieces of information that people would use to uh, it basically become a subjective validation at that point. You, you have these writings, and you can interpret them any way you want, depending on who you're reading them for or, um, or what your mood is at the time. A lot of you know, the, what, what current astrologers do, they, they remain very vague. These, these predictions and these things that they talk about can be applied to just about anyone under any given circumstances. And the reason that you need these people who can translate it is not many people know these old languages anymore. You know, there are only so many people. So they're revered as these uh, seers or mystics, you know, who can only translate the old languages. And that's supposed to give them some kind of reverence or or power, as it were, uh, to be able to translate from the mystical texts. But, you know, all it is is that it's a lost language and there are a few people around who are actually able to read and translate the language. Is your sense from re- from your reading about this that they're not actually reading this language? They're just kind of making it up as they go along. No, they're trying to infer from what was written, you know, what was what was actually intended. Well, there are there are actual readers, and you know, some of the leaves that have survived over the years. There are supposedly um, several thousands of these leaves that ha- that have been that are still in existence today, um, and some of them do con- contain these astrological phrases and sayings at the times and yes it's actually there are readers who still do know the old language language but it's nothing more than an older version of the modern astro- astrologer yeah it sounds like what you get is a cold reading that's right yep it's just a, it's just another mechanism it could be palm reading it could be anything tarot reading it's just some other mechanism by which someone is giving you a cold reading that's right you know something else i found online about this is that um there was one particular fellow from india who wrote a paper on it and he's a, and he's a skeptic and uh, his experience was that he went to have a leaf reading done and he went with a doctor friend of mm-hmm. his and um what he noticed right away is that when he went to go and have his leaf reading done the reader spent some time with him and the other person that he was with ahead of time and you know and was trying to get as as much information from him ahead of time as they possibly could yeah. you know names right. of names of relatives and you know where they work and these other things you know trying to accumulate all this information and then they go and then they take the thumbprint 
what that is all about is supposedly that's the that's the signature of uh, of how to find the correct leaf uh, for you. They take your thumbprint and then they go they take it into the back and then they try to match it up as best as they can to whatever. But what are they are matching remaining. it to? I mean, do these leaves that were written on thousands of years ago do they like draw a thumbprint of the person in the future that it would match? It's not cl- that- no, it's not it's not literal like that. But at the same time, it's not exactly clear how they translate a thumbprint into the correct leaf that was never made clear in any in anything that i can find yeah, apparently I, I the, find that's part of the, that's that. part of the magic of the seer yeah. apparently they're the only ones who can see the lines in the thumbprint and and translate that into which leaf they're going to give you they're going to pull out for your reading and then then they're re- they're reading off the leaf mm-hmm. but it's not uh, I, you know, I, from what again, from what I can infer from what I read, it's not like it's it's like an astrological reading where it's vague enough where they can sort of read it and apply it to the individual person. That's right, and that's where the cold reading comes in. You know, again, cold reading very quickly is just the technique of starting with sort of vague, generalized statements that can apply to anyone, and then you know through the interaction applying them to the specifics of the individual that you have sitting in front of you. That's right. And as the, uh, the, uh, the Indian who was a skeptic who went and did this, you know, realized, he said, when he came back and did his reading for him, you know, like he said, it was vague. And yeah, just about everything he said could apply to him. But he also made some future predictions, you know. But he said nothing that he predicted about the future, as he expected, actually came true. Yeah. Well, thanks, Evan. Yeah, no problem. Joining us now is Robert Fitzpatrick. Robert, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Thank you. Happy to be with you. And Robert is the president of Pyramid Scheme Alert, uh, and they have a website, pyramidschemealert.org, and you're also one of the co-authors of the book False Prophets, and your concern is primarily uh, multi-level marketing and pyramid schemes. Can you tell us exactly what that is? Well, uh, I'll start with the word pyramid scheme or the term pyramid scheme. I think most people can uh, have some familiarity with it. Uh, it's, it's similar to a chain letter, endless chain. It's sometimes called Ponzi scheme, also called money transfer scheme. Basically, it's a plan in which uh, earlier investors are paid by later investors. So there's no underlying enterprise that in which values exchanged and profit is earned, and dividends are paid, or anything like that. It's strictly a transfer of money. Uh, give me $100, go get a few other people to give you $100, and so on. Of course, for it to continue, it requires continuous expansion, and mathematically is uh, unsustainable. So it's what is called an inherent fraud, and it's a, a trick. It's a mathematical trick. It's a classic flim-flam. Mm-hmm. Now, multi-level marketing is a form of selling products. In the case of multi-level marketing, what we have observed, and we've spent many years here studying these companies, is that we have hundreds of companies that are effectively pyramid schemes. They are disguised as businesses. Uh, They are disguised as sales businesses, uh, what they call direct selling. But in fact... Uh, they're just a an endless chain of salespeople recruiting salespeople recruiting salespeople, mm-hmm. and there's no uh, actual retail selling occurring. So a person can sign up, becomes what they call a distributor, 
and as part of that business plan, a must purchase, let's say, $150 a month of product. You never really sell that $150. You just take it, own it. But then they say you can recoup your 150 a month if you bring in five additional salespeople who would each also purchase $150 a month. And let's say you would get $50 from each one of them. So if you could do that, you would get $250 a month and you'd be ahead. And they would in turn do the same. But of course they would need 25 and the 25 would need 125. So a plan like that might seem feasible, but actually if it were carried forward, it could only go 13 levels and you would run out of human beings. Right. In other words, 5 to the 13th power approximately would pass the population of the Earth. So that would be a trick if a company enrolled you into a plan like that, and that is exactly what most of them do. So what would be an example of um, like one of the biggest ones out there? Well, the very biggest, the oldest, and undoubtedly the best known is the Amway Corporation. Amway Corporation uh, has been sued by the Federal Trade Commission for operating a pyramid scheme. Uh, it survived a four-year li- uh, litigation. A judge ruled that under certain conditions, though the organization was structured as a pyramid scheme, it could operate legally as long as the majority of the business was, in fact, based on retail sales. And having survived that lawsuit from the Federal Trade Commission, this was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, in the ensuing year, years, the federal government did no oversight. And Amway simply devolved into a recruitment scheme. Now, right as we speak, Amway is on trial in England, mm-hmm. charged with operating a Ponzi scheme. And the data that the authorities in England revealed is that um, nobody makes any money. More than 99% of the people in Amway never earn a dime. Well, in a pyramid scheme, by definition, the vast majority can't make money in the same way that the vast majority of people can't win a lottery. Um, Because there has to be a huge base of losers because it is their money that is the source of the so-called winnings or earnings of the people at the top. There are two current major class action lawsuits right now against Amway uh, for operating a pyramid scheme, one brought by the sort of rank-and-file distributors and the other brought by uh, some of the very top insiders who have now charged that Amway is, in fact, a pyramid scheme and that it is impossible for any but a tiny few people to ever earn a profit. Mm-hmm. And therefore, all the promotions and the recruitments and solicitations are based on deception. But with Amway and with many of these other companies, there actually is a product, right? I mean, Amway sells uh, like cleaning solutions and, and household products, correct? But you're saying that the rank-and-file uh, retailers down down the uh, the pyramid just are not able to sell the product, or they're not really even trying? Well, they don't try because they're really not able to. Um, but let me just address that issue of a product. As you said, the, the product, there's a product there, and the product serves as the disguise. A pyramid scheme doesn't have to be just a cash transfer. 
the money can be disguised in many different ways. Um, in the case of multi-level marketing, let's say you purchase a hundred dollars of product from the multi-level marketing. Forty percent of that hundred dollars will go to your recruiters upline. Mm-hmm. And then the pay plan is structured so that the majority of that money, 50% of that money, normally goes to the, immediately to the top 1%. What the, the, the dividing line would be, um, you, you could structure a company as an endless chain. This is what the FTC had said and has ruled in the past. But if the uh, products that the people are purchasing are never resold to anybody outside the chain, if it's a closed system, then all you're doing is using the product to launder the money. So instead of paying your upline, as they call it, you, you're purchasing product, and then the money is transferred from your purchase to them as a percentage of your purchase. When you recruit people, you'll receive a, a, a percentage of, of their investment. But by, but by having a product... Even though that's just, as you said, it's just, that's just uh, concealing the transfer of money. Or why, why, why does the, doesn't the FTC or the relevant uh, regulatory agencies decide that these multi-level marketing companies that are essentially a sham and that are using product just to conceal the transfer of money, how is that working? Why is that fooling the FTC? This is the more disturbing part of this story, I think, uh, because it is political, primarily, that mm-hmm. we're speaking about. And it's not just a influence buying, which there's plenty of that. The Amway Corporation, to, to understand it, is one of the most politically connected companies in America. Uh, it is one of the very top di- contributors to the National Republican Party. Mm-hmm. The son of the president or the founder of Amway just ran for the governorship of Michigan. It runs... 527 organizations. It supports candidates. So if the Amway yacht was parked in the water outside the Republican National Convention when it was held in San Diego, Amway underwrote much of the convention. It is a tremendous insider company. The son of the founder, Dick DeVos, his wife is married to the sister of the founder of Blackwater. Mm-hmm. That is one reason the FTC is not acting. It has simply been muzzled for the last eight years. Under the Clinton administration, the Democrats not being the recipients of the money, there was active prosecution of multi-level marketing companies. There was court rulings that supported the FTC prosecutions, and there was a strong model established for defining a what is called a product-based pyramid scheme. All of that came to a screeching halt in 2001 when the Bush administration came in, and one of the first appointments that the Bush administration made was a man named Timothy Muris to head the FTC. Muris at that time worked in the antitrust division of a law firm whose largest client is the Amway Corporation. So that ended the FTC's enforcement of pyramid schemes effectively. But there's one other factor um, that maybe is even more interesting in the skeptics community. You know, to enforce pyramid scheme laws uh, is not popular uh, in government. E- even when the, when the fraud is fairly straightforward and is well understood by regulators, 
to break up a pyramid scheme causes every person that has money invested to lose immediately. Mm-hmm. Now, pyramid scheme is structured so that the vast majority have to lose anyway. But if you're in it, you're hoping it isn't you. It will be somebody after you that loses. Mm-hmm. When the government cracks down, there is a great hue and cry against pyramid schemes, against the government right. for breaking it up. So it's an unpopular thing to do. If you're in the scheme, you hate the government for doing this. If you're not in the scheme, you don't care. Yeah. So there's no votes to be gained by breaking up pyramid schemes. It would require dedicated, diligent law enforcement in acting in the public interest. You see, there's no political will. Yeah. I, I, I can understand that, but if 99% of, of people who get involved with these schemes lose money, there's got to be a lot of people out there who have lost money in pyramid schemes and, and wouldn't millions that be... And millions and millions. Well, wouldn't that be a political group, a, a group that would uh, be in favor of, of cracking down on, on multi-level marketing schemes? Well, this is what I meant about the skeptics community because I think, you know, we're familiar with the concept of mass delusions and... If, if you were to go to a, an Amway meeting and as the first time, you, you would be told about this glorious income opportunity. You would have a man on the stage sporting a Rolex watch, wearing a, an Armani suit, and telling you about his exotic vacation in Switzerland and that anybody could be earning what he's earning if you join. He would, though, also say that anybody can do it, but if you can't do it, if you don't do it, it would be only for a couple of reasons. You quit... Or you didn't try hard enough, or you're at heart a loser. Mm-hmm. You're a negative loser type. Now, there are people like that. They, they, they want the government to protect them. They really are anti-business. They hate profit, and uh, they want somebody to take care of them. Those kinds of people will lose. Now, not everybody makes money in this program. A lot of people just don't have what it takes. But anybody that tries and follows the plan will make money. But if you don't make money, don't come to us. It'll only be your own fault. So this is a story that is pounded into people from day one. And it is quite powerful and convincing. So most people, when they lose, and again, Amway churns 70% a year. So if they have a million people in... They're going to replace 700,000 of them worldwide every year. They, therefore, have to develop as part of the plan an effective means for preventing those people from coming after them or blaming them. And this is built into the marketing plan. But there's a few other reasons people don't come after Amway or even blame Amway. One, you got recruited usually by a friend. The friend may still be in it. So for you to lodge a complaint, you now have implicated your friend. You yourself may have recruited a few other people in the course of your tenure. Are you going to now go back to those people and say, you know, I'm sorry, I actually brought you into a flim-flam, a flawed business model that I didn't realize it, and I'm sorry you lost your money, but it was my fault. Mm -hmm. Very few people would be doing that. And third, if you did all of this and you had some awareness that this thing really was a flawed model and you fell for it and you lost, are you going to really run around advertising that you were hoodwinked? So there's elements of embarrassment, shame, social pressure, and, and sheer naivete in believing that really at heart 
maybe you are a loser. Robert, what you're, what you're describing, what it sounds like to me, have a lot of the same aspects and traits that we would define a cult as having. Do you find this to be a cult-like mentality involved with these pyramid schemes? Well, definitely, and, um, and I'm certainly not the first person. In fact, uh, one of the very first books ever written about Amway was by Stephen Butterworth, and it was called Amway, the Cult of Free Enterprise. Mm. Amway is often described as a business cult. We have religious cults, political cults, and so on. They capitalize and make a religion out of many of the values that are quite dear in America. Free enterprise, independence, entrepreneurship, wealth. And people can become whipped into quite a frenzy over these uh, dreams of having wealth, freedom, and independence, of having kind of beaten the system, found a special way, a business that's a kind of unorthodox model that the government hates and that many people like social activists and reformers are trying to shut down. And they feel as part of a kind of enlightened elite uh, a new crusade. If you've ever seen um, a meeting of these, NBC Dateline took a hidden camera into the Amway meetings. There were 10,000 people at an auditorium in Greenville, South Carolina, and they were led in a thunderous chant, freedom, freedom, flush that stinking job. <clears throat> and it was, it, it was, as I said, thunderous, and they were all holding lighted candles. And I think anybody who walked into that room would say, this feels and looks like a cult event. And, and absolutely, there is elements of brainwashing, There's uh, and many of the same techniques, repetitive aphorisms over and over, uh, isolating people to associate only with people in the, in the scheme, separating you from family or friends who may question it, telling you in advance those people are negative, they're trying to hold you back from success. Mm -hmm. So very definitely, um, there is a, a strong element of cultism, of, of uh, mass deception on a grand scale, very orchestrated, and all necessary because the hard data is there. I'm looking at the data right now that Amway itself has disclosed under government order about the actual payouts, and it shows very clearly that... Um, Virtually no one makes any money at it. Um, they have admitted to these churn rates of uh, 50 to 70 percent. The insiders say it is over 70 percent. They have admitted that less than 20 percent of their products are ever resold. Mm -hmm. Again, the class action lawsuits say the figure is less than 10 percent. Yeah. Now, it seems like the linchpin is that is the requiring of the purchasing of product. Like yeah. you have to buy $150 worth of product per month. Yeah. I mean, have you targeted that piece to try to get, you know, to get the laws changed so that that, so you, rather than trying to outlaw multi-level marketing, you just outlaw the requirement of buying product as basically constituting a pyramid scheme. That's right. The, the requirement to purchase is what is often called pay to play. In other words, uh, all laws that uh, define pyramid scheme uh, will include some sentence that refers to the payment of consideration, as they call it. In effect, to participate, you've got to pay. You've got to invest. 
the way the multi-level marketing companies get around this is they say, you don't have to ever pay if you don't want to. However, if you want to qualify for commissions from your downline, you must maintain a certain level of purchases personally or in your group. So when you start out, in order for you to uh, to gain the uh, revenue, the, the commissions from anybody you might recruit, you will have to be buying monthly or you're, you're out right from the start. This, in this way, they skirt the law in saying that no, nobody was required to pay consideration. Mm-hmm. They did this as part of a pay plan. Uh, they did this voluntarily. Yeah, so it sounds like they're they're very clever, obviously, and it's almost maybe you need a, a law that isn't then so detailed because they could always find some way to subvert the details. That's right. But you need a law that's more like a RICO kind of law that just says, you know, if it if it looks like a pyramid scheme and acts like a pyramid scheme, it is a pyramid scheme, and 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 we could put a, a, a case together without necessarily having to meet some very specific criterion that you can skirt. That's right, and we've uh, this has been this is a, a kind of truism in the regulatory world that uh, the simplest, shortest law possible is the best type of law to cover a pyramid scheme. I, because when it looks like a duck, sounds like a duck, and so on, walks like a duck, it's a duck, and the law, the law should be able to do that. Frankly, again, uh, I don't think that anybody, anyone seriously examining these companies would have a problem acknowledging or recognizing a fraud here. The amazing thing, though, and... I think this is something that is a truly uh, an untold story, is, is just what you referenced earlier. How could so many people lose so much? And we're talking billions of dollars being siphoned out of millions of people here in the U.S. every year going to a tiny group at the top of these schemes year after year, and the awareness is not there of what has occurred. This is quite something quite amazing. It's stunning, yes. Yeah. It, it, it really is. And we have a very blatant fraud occurring, but it is reinforced and given credibility by lack of government oversight and by building around it the trappings of legitimacy. Um, and then by its longevity of time, people say, well, how could it be, how could it be a fraud when... So many are involved over so long a period, and so little has been done about it. And if you were to go to an Amway meeting, you might find a prominent city official or even someone higher as uh, offering being the guest speaker. You might have uh, Oliver North or Colin Powell or, or Arnold Schwarzkopf there as a speaker or Rick Santorum. You might have a prominent clergyman uh, offering the invocation. The Star Spangled Banner would be played, and a prayer would be given, and then uh, a member of the Chamber of Commerce would step forward who is in it. Would you be able, as an individual, to stand up and say, this whole thing is a scam? Right. (laughs) Hey, Robert, if you just bought Amway product and tried to sell it, and let's say that you were moderately successful in selling the product, would you make enough money just to have a career just selling their product? No, 
and uh, virtually no one does. And uh, for for very good, simple business reasons, nothing magic here. The the product that Amway sells, and they sell a multitude of products, by the way, not just soap anymore. But let's just take their soap. The same kind of soap is available in a hundred different brands in the grocery store for less. So they don't have anything unique to sell. Buying it from Amway is awkward. It's more expensive. Um, it involves you buying it through somebody in an upline or something like that uh, in quantities you may not want. The profit margin available on the retail sale is not adequate to cover your time. It's a difficult sale to make. Direct selling, you know, going out and selling soap door to door, can you imagine how difficult that would be? Yeah, right. So it's not a feasible business. People could try, and some people do try, but almost no one tries for very long because it is simply not feasible. And it's a terrible business model. That's right. It's a it's an it's an unfeasible, uh, untenable business model. Not enough margin, a me too product, an unnecessary model because the product is available on, uh, from other places on the internet in a store, big box store, for less, bigger choice, easier. Why would anybody buy that product? Well, no one does, as it turns out, except yeah. those that are enrolled in the, in the income opportunity. Now, there's, there's um, what I believe is a, a similar type of model, although a lot of um, snake oil products, you know, vitamin juices and things like that are sold using multi-level marketing. And it seems to me that they're, it's a similar kind of situation except the, uh, the people farther down in the, in the multi-level marketing uh, scheme are intended to use the product themselves. They're not, yes. Yes. so it's a little bit different because they're, they're, their customers are their uh, recruiters and sellers. But yeah. yeah, so there's really just people who are just paying for their own habit. It's really just a way of of making sort of dedicated customers for the product. So is, are you talking about like Noni Juice, Steve? Yeah, like Noni, Noni Juice yeah. and, 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 and those kind of companies. Goji, Goji. Berries, Noni Juice. There are so many of these uh, that have some exotic fruit juice, vegetable juice, enzyme, or something like that. Um, and the product is hyped as near, a near miracle product, and, and Amway operates this way also. You are you are expected to buy the product yourself. Product is touted as having some inherent superior qualities, despite its higher price. And this also serves as a kind of defense. The the, the problem again comes back to um, how did they induce those purchases? Well, again, look at the business historically here. What you discover is that the only people purchasing it are, as you noted, the people who've enrolled. That is, they signed up, signed a legally binding sales contract, obligating them and and exposing them to certain risks that you would not have as a normal consumer, restricting their freedoms considerably under that contract. You cannot enroll in another MLM company while you're selling it. You can't disparage the product. You can't disparage the company. It's very restrictive. All of this to get the product supposedly at a discount. However, nobody pays retail anyway. But then there's one other very odd phenomenon. If these people were so intent on the product that they went through all of this and signed up and obligated themselves to buy it month after month, 
on an auto order system? Why do they stop buying it in mass mm -hmm. so quickly and never buy it again? So you would think if the product really were so compelling that it would induce somebody to sign that contract, become a distributor, buy it on auto order and all of that other, why did they stop buying? And then you see that what we had here, again, was a disguised pyramid recruitment scheme. The product became hype, but in the end, what really was pulling people forward was the promise of income, which didn't materialize. A person that starts into these schemes with, this, with the goal that they're going to become wealthy and they're told the plan can make them wealthy, it's amazing how a magic spell can be cast over that product. That fruit juice can suddenly become truly a magic potion. Mm -hmm. It can cure anything, and you'll believe it, and you'll experience energy and vitality. You'll notice you ha you're not as uh, cranky anymore. Your spirits are better. Sex is better. Surely it's that fruit juice. But then when the income doesn't materialize, strangely the magical properties of the product begin to disappear too. Well, it was good while it lasted, right? <laughs> it was good while it lasted, yes. Exactly. It was a, you know, it was um, it was another dimension almost where life had limit unlimited possibilities as they said that you had stumbled upon the opportunity of a lifetime that a product had been found that was not on the mass market that you discovered now, although you were solicited and really it was brought to you, that you seemed at the right place at the right time, that everybody around you seemed like this happy, positive, supportive community, that life suddenly had such promise. And yeah, it's a wonderful thing, if only it were true. Right. People are pathetic, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> Well, Robert, this has been very enlightening. We appreciate you giving us so much time. Well, thank you for, for taking an interest in the subject. I, I hope that it um, sheds some light on a kind of untold story here that's uh, operating kind of all over around yeah. us, but seldom in the media. Good luck with uh, fighting the, the good fight. Okay. All right. Good night. Good night, hey, Robert. Good night. Thank you. Good night. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and then I challenge my skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We do have a theme this week, although it's a fairly loose theme. These are all items taken from the 2008 AAAS meeting in Boston the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Mm -hmm. So obviously there could be any scientific item, but these are all things that were presented at the AAAS meeting. And here we go. Item number one, biologist Kenneth Miller, during a lecture at the, re at the recent AAAS meeting, argued that biologists should acknowledge that there is design in nature. Item number two, a new study shows that estrogen in municipal waste is causing sex changes in some fish species, devastating their populations. And item number three, new data from the Swift Gamma Ray Burst Explorer satellite indicates that gamma ray bursts contain a previously undetected type of neutrino. Evan, go first. Um, so this Kenneth Miller statement, uh, arguing biologists should acknowledge that there is design in nature. You know, you can take that 
a couple different ways, I think. The number two about estrogen and municipal waste causing sex sex changes in fish species. Sure, I think that's entirely plausible. We've seen what antibiotics have done going through, I think, the waste system, and it has also had effects on uh, being being effective against um, uh, bacteria and stuff and how it's cutting down on that effectiveness. So I think that's plausible. The last one, gamma ray burst explorer satellite, previously undetected type of neutrino. I think that's also very plausible. Lots of news about gamma rays, gamma ray bursts lately. If you've been watching the Science Channel at all or the Universe program, it's all very cool. So I will say that the Kenneth Miller statement is fiction. Okay, Jay? As far as the estrogen and municipal waste, that one rings a bell. Don't know why. The new data uh, from the Swift Gamma Ray Burst Explorer satellite, um, ah, God, just a, a new type of neutrino. I, I don't know what, something about that doesn't seem right to me. And then uh, the first one, I don't, I don't know anything about this. I think it's very possible. But, but you know, of course, it's begging to ask design, meaning what kind of design, you know? Can you, can you uh, elaborate on that, Steve? No. <laughs> All right. I mean, that's that, of course it's plausible. Why is that a big deal? The guy says there's design in nature, and you're not going to clarify it, so it's... Uh, yeah, I just don't know about a new neutrino, an undetected type of neutrino. Is that... I mean, wouldn't we... Maybe they've predicted this type of neutrino, but they've never detected it before. What are you talking about, Steve? Can you give me more information? Something like that. That's pretty much it. Just huh? in general, what are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> what are you talking about? He was most sincere when he told you. Yeah. <laughs> What it was. I don't know about that. Undetected. T- I don't know. Nah. Jay will be playing the role of Bob this evening. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, really. <laughs> no, I, I just don't think three is, three seems silly to me. Okay. Rebecca? It pains me to say it, but Jay, Jay sounds like he's speaking the truth there. Um, knowing what I know about Kenneth Miller, I can, and he, if I recall, he's the guy who is a, a theist uh, who defends evolution. So I, I could see him, you know, making some connections uh, with design. So, uh, yeah, I, that's – and plus you won't clarify. So, yeah, that's probably true. Um, <laughs> estrogen causing sex changes in fish populations. That sounds suspiciously like old news to me. Like I thought we knew about this ages ago which makes me suspect that there's something weird about that one, but I'm going to go ahead and say that it's also science. So that leaves me with gamma ray bursts and neutrinos, um, things of which I am, I am woefully ignorant of because I, I couldn't name an old type of neutrino, let alone a previously undetected type. So I'm going to say uh, that that is fiction. All right, so you all agree that a new study shows that estrogen in municipal waste is causing sex changes in some fish species, devastating their populations, and that is indeed science. Absolutely. And Rebecca, you're right. This is not the very first time this has been reported, ah. although the new bit is just the, is the effect that it's having on the species, the, the populations. It was previously known that estrogen has been in, the, in some of the wastewater, that it can have adverse effects. What the new data that was presented uh, it was just showing what a negative effect it is having on some fish populations. This is research led by Dr. Karen Kidd, and what she showed is that um, the estrogen in, is causing some feminization in, in male fish. So the, some of the male fish are uh, having more feminine 
characteristics, and specifically they're making less sperm. And it also delays the maturation of the female fish. Mm. Uh, so they get to sexual maturity later. And uh, again, the, the net effect on some some fish species has been actually rather devastating to the populations, especially smaller fish, which makes sense because the smaller fish will be getting more of a dose for their weight. But of course, the smaller fish species are the ones that largely feed the larger fish species, which are the ones that we that we eat that would end up on our on your dinner table. So Yeah, and one perk from this is that there's more breast meat. <laughs> oh my <laughs> god. Fish, <but laughs> that was bad even for you, Jay. <laughs> that was bad. Um, the next one we'll go to we'll go to number one. Uh, Evan, you thought this one was fiction. Biologist Kenneth Miller, during a lecture at a recent AAAS meeting, argued that biologists should acknowledge that there is design in nature. And this one is science. Uh-huh. Thought I would get more or is that it? one. Or is it, Steve? <laughs> it is. So he did say it's that. Science, but um, now, of what he is saying, now, Kenneth Miller is a theist uh, who is a staunch defender of evolution, a believer in evolution, is an evolutionary biologist, and he's also a, an, uh, an outspoken critic of intelligent design creationism. What he's saying is, is that we can't let the intelligent design boobs control the jargon and the terminology. It's like, yeah, there is design in nature. There's evolutionary design in right. nature. Evolution is the designing agent, and that things are not they're, – they're, they're characterizing – the evolutionary point of view is saying that you know evolution is random and chaotic and and meaningless and what he's saying is no it, it can produce design it's a bottom up evolved design but it is design and and he wants to basically take back that terminology and not let them control it so that's what he was saying well i like where he's going with that that's very cool yeah which means that new data from the Swift Gamma Ray Burst Explorer satellite indicates that gamma ray bursts contain a previously undetected type of neutrino is in fact Fiction. That is fiction. Uh, there was, of, of course, I usually derive this from something real. There was a, a lecture at the AAAS about the, the satellite and gamma ray bursts, essentially just summarizing what has been discovered to date. This has been a really fascinating area of research, of astronomical research. And the uh, gamma ray bursts are, um, are brief, very energetic, the most energetic you know, energy that we see out there. Uh, for example, the brightest of them, according this is now a press release discussing the lecture, is, I will quote as saying, the brightest of them emit more energy in a few seconds than our sun will emit in its whole 10 billion year lifetime. That's a lot of oh energy. Oh my God. Wow. See, that's what we need. That's better than fusion, fission. Yeah. We've got to get a couple of so those. So if one of these were aimed at us and We'd were close to us... It would fry the Earth. All life on Earth would be gone. So can't we just put a big mirror mm, out there? No. Yeah, you know, I don't know that. We, I don't, we don't have the technology right <laughs> so now. The magnetic field is not strong enough to protect be, us. It'd be game over. So since the uh, satellite's launch in 2004, it's discovered over 292 gamma ray bursts uh, and pinpointed a further 320 bursts detected by other satellites. The current model is that these bursts occur uh, right before the formation of black holes. Which, which obviously is a very energetic event. You know, black holes are very, very massive. When they, the process of forming involves a lot of energy. So there's this final collapse phase of the black hole that results just in this brief explosion of gamma rays of energy. Very cool. But nothing about neutrinos. That part I just made up because it sounded semi-plausible, but I'm pretty sure it's not true. So I always have to remember that whenever I make something up, I make absolutely sure it's 
not accidentally true. There are, for those who are interested, three flavors, and they are actually called flavors of neutrinos. There's an electron neutrino, a muon neutrino, and a tau neutrino. And each of these also, those are the, those are the, uh, the matter neutrino particles, and each one of those also has an antineutrino, the antimatter partner. Hmm. Neutrinos are created during nuclear reactions. So there are, in fact, are models predicted that a certain number of neutrinos should be made by the nuclear fusion in the sun, and yet we didn't detect the neutrinos that we hypothesized should be there. And that was called the neutrino, the solar neutrino problem. Uh, and then it, the idea came up, well, maybe the neutrinos are changing their type on the way from the sun to the earth. And if we look for the other kinds of neutrinos, maybe, and, we, and they had to figure out how to detect them, then maybe that would uh, solve the solar neutrino problem. And in fact, that's what happened, and it did. So. And they, they dubbed that the apple pie hubbub, right? Right. Uh, so the, the predictions eventually all matched up nicely with what was being observed. Yay. So congratulations, Jay and Rebecca. You sniffed that well one done. out. I stepped in it. Though it's now, I, I have a piece of news that'll piss Bob off. Okay. Last night I was having dinner with Mike Lassell because he came for a visit. And Mike told me that if I got it right tonight that I matched my old record of nine in a row. Oh, is that right? Know. Good, that's... Which I had no idea. I thought I was doing very badly so far this year. So if I if I get next week correct, I beat my old record, and Bob's wow. going to freak. And I've never been busier at work, and never reading less science news than I ever have. Even in the beginning, You're just getting lucky. Is that what you say? Just getting lucky. Well, well Which done, pissed, Jay and Rebecca. Good job. Thank you. Good job, Jay. High five. Good job, Rebecca. Yep. Awesome. You rock, girl. You're rocking harder, by the way. <laughs> Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? I have a, I have a quote. I have a quote for the moon. A lunar <laughs> and quote. And Rebecca likes this one. Uh, this is Albert Einstein. No introductions needed. to <laughs> him. Albert said, "I like to think that the moon is there, even if I'm not looking at it." Wow, wow. Pers- persistence. He could wax poetic about the moon. Smart man. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> but unfortunately, our podcast is waning, so we have to shut it down. Aww. Come on, give us a break. I'm going to miss you, bunch of gibbons. Oh, I beat gibbons. you to it. <laughs> did you make a gibbous joke? I didn't even hear. Damn. I said, give us a break. Oh, that's funnier, too. That's pretty good, Evan. That's, that's not bad, kid. That was good, Evan. Good. I'm trying to think of a crescent pun right now, but I can't think of anything. Steve, we, the three of us would like to thank you for joining us tonight. We would? Well, you're welcome, guys. So, My yeah, pleasure. Thanks for joining always. us. Appreciate it. Do we have any announcements? Yeah, a couple, you know, a couple announcements. Um... You know, everyone's just going to kick me till I'm dead, but I have not contacted any of the people yet. My that God, you suck. So, okay. I, I look, I was away on business. I'm going crazy at work. Literally, I'm so busy at work. I'm going crazy. I mean, so you you're, when are you quitting work? And unfortunately, I'm leaving on vacation next <laughs> week. I'm going to try to to get the email out and start the ball rolling, but I don't even think I should bother until I get home now. So no, because you suck so bad. Just call me a jerk, but... I'm sorry. Don't be sore. I'll, I will contact everybody. I just haven't had the time. What can I tell you? You're a disappointment to us all. Too. Yeah. You're a failure. Yep. Oh, well. But, you know, you could dig us if you like. Go to dig.com. Leave us some feedback on iTunes. Um, come to TAM 6 and get totally wasted with me and Rebecca. That is always Speaking a good time. of, thank you to everybody who came out to my talk in New York City last weekend. It was a huge success. Very cool. But everyone, you know... Have a good night, and uh, we'll just—I'll see you in two weeks. 
All right. So, Jay, so Jay you're not going to be with us next week. No, no, I'm I'm going to Hawaii, man. I got to spend some time with my wife. Right. It's like it's like actually our honeymoon. So, so, so Bob will is... be back with us, but Jay will be gone. It's your second trip to Hawaii, yeah. Jay. Well, I went last year, and we had such a good time. Hey, you got to follow up on all the pseudoscience that you talked about. That's right. Well, we're going. I'm going to two different islands this time, and I'm going to try to dig up something else other than the you know the traditional stuff. I want to see if I can find it. Maybe some new stuff in Hawaii. That's that's silly. Yeah, new silly stuff. I'll find something. Find something. I'll something with aphrodisiacs. That'd be nice. At least find a coconut bra that you can wear to Tam Six. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> Well, have a have a good time, Jay. Imagine me rolling out on the stage with a coconut bra and and a utility belt. (laughs) Oh my god! As long as I'm not standing next to you, that's fine. Well, thank you again, guys. guys. Thank Thank you, you, Steve. And until next week, this is your skeptic's guide to the universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Problem.